Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this episode number 47, the continuation of the North York General Hospital's Emergency Update Conference highlights from 2014, we have with us the one and only Dr. Walter Himmel, who really needs no introduction, but I'll give it to you anyways. Dr. Himmel is an emergency physician at North York General Hospital and Toronto East General Hospital. He's one of my biggest mentors. He's otherwise known as the walking encyclopedia of emergency medicine, and he's a world-renowned speaker in emergency medicine. So without further ado, here's Walter Himmel and his take on evidence-based medicine. We're going on a journey back to 1976. Everything I believed in my heart was absolutely wrong. TPA, is that good or evil? It's not just the evidence, it's your clinical expertise. The right evidence for the right place, for the right patient. Who in the world can you trust? Trust yourself. And here we go. This talk today is very unusual. It's about philosophy, it's about history, it's about evidence-based medicine. Let's go back to 1976. So put down your pens and pencils, put down your iPads and your peripherals, and fasten your seatbelts, because we, you and I, we're going on a journey back to 1976. Now for some of you, you were alive in 76, you shall disappear. <laughs> but I will bring you back. Let's talk about myocardial infarctions in 1976. I'm about to say you may think it's being totally bizarre, but it wasn't in 76. 76, here's what happened when you had a myocardial infarction. First of all, you're admitted to the hospital for two weeks. Two weeks in the hospital, resting. Now, when a, you can have brain surgery and a head transplant today. You ain't staying two weeks in the hospital. Oxygen, nitroglycerin, you won't argue with that. Bed rest for four to five days. Now, what's that all about? We believed if you had a heart attack and you stood up too quickly, you would drop dead in the spot. <laughs> I was an expert. I knew that. Bed rest was an essential part of heart attacks. No aspirin, no heparin. You see, studies had shown, by pathologists, of course, when you had a heart attack, the scar took six weeks to heal up. So we knew if you gave somebody with a myocardial infarction aspirin, their scar would rupture and they would die. Aspirin was dangerous. Heparin was absolutely dangerous. Now, laxative was the primary treatment for myocardial infarctions. <laughs> if I didn't order Surfac and Senecot, my MI patients in 76, my staff man gave me shit. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because we knew if you got out of bed after three or four days and strained to have a bowel movement, your heart would rupture. So laxatives were crucial for myocardial infarction treatment. Look at the mortality, 20%. It was even higher, actually. What's the mortality today with MIs? 6%, 7%, it's variable. 12 years later, 1988. The next paper is the ISIS-2, International Study on Infarct Survival 2. This is probably the most important paper, in my opinion, of the 20th century, and the tribute 
I salute this paper, a tribute to evidence-based medicine. Here's what the paper said. Randomized people. Give a quarter aspirin, give a quarter streptokinase, give a quarter aspirin and streptokinase, and give a quarter placebo. And I was convinced in 1988, which was long ago, that the group who got the aspirin streptokinase would hemorrhage to death and die. But I recall patients starting bleeding from their gums. And I said, I told you, so that guy's going to die from hemorrhaging to death. That's what I believed. I was absolutely wrong. Clinical experience was absolutely wrong. The Lancet, 1988. The patients study randomized. Why do you randomize patients in studies? To prevent bias. Now, what is bias? Non-random error, otherwise known as cheating. Double-blind. I thought double blind was ridiculous. I'm treating a patient. I'm not sure I'm giving the patient. And the patient doesn't know what they're getting. The whole thing struck me as being totally ridiculous. But it was all about preventing biased. Some of the basic principles of evidence-based medicine. It was placebo-controlled. Giving a patient placebo, I thought it was absolutely unethical. But some people think giving MI patients laxatives and bed rest was unethical. Not in those days. The follow-up of these patients were complete. All the patients were followed up, so we couldn't ignore the ones who didn't meet our expectations. Important outcomes, the outcome was death. So what did evidence-based medicine discover? Well, remember, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, the essential aspects of stopping bias, lying, non-random bias. Death from placebo, 13% of five weeks. That's pretty bad. Aspirin alone and nothing else. Save four lives. Streptokines alone, no aspirin. Save three or four lives. And the combination saved more. This was probably one of the first victories for evidence-based medicine. And I can tell you, in 1988, I was absolutely stunned. And as recently as 1996, in the European Stroke Prevention Study, for TA prevention leads going on to stroke, they studied aspirin versus agronox versus what? Placebo as recently as 1996. It took us 50, 60 years to get aspirin straight. So what did ISIS teach us? <laughs> aspirin was very effective. Thrombolytics, very effective. I was convinced they'd kill people. Bed rest was a total waste of time. And laxatives of limited value. It also taught me something else. Everything I believed in my heart was absolutely wrong. This was a great victory. My goal is today, what is EBM, evidence-based medicine? Where do you find it? What are the risks? And believe me, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Who can you believe? So TPA, is that good or evil? The last time I discussed TPA for stroke, I'll tell you what happened. Violence broke out in the room. I was almost assassinated, but I'm going to try it again. And blood, good or evil. David Sackett practiced at Hamilton McMaster for many, many years. He was the father of evidence-based medicine. Now, some of us have the wrong idea about EBM. We think it's all about statistics and confidence intervals and adjusted regression, and that's part of it. So he said evidence-based medicine was the conscientious, explicit, judicious use of current best evidence. Well, who can argue with that? But he said it wasn't just that. It was about clinical expertise and clinical experience. It's not just the evidence. It's your clinical expertise. That's absolutely essential. A highly informed person with no clinical experience is dangerous. 
And it was also about something else called values. Evidence-based medicine is not just about science and mathematics statistics and, double and randomized control studies. It's not just about expertise. It's about the patient's values, not yours. What's good for one patient might be good for another. So it's about values, the best in research at that point in time, and it can be pretty crappy, and clinical expertise. Now, we all thought this guy was sort of weird. And here was our biggest fear. I was the expert. There was no podcast, no computers. What I said was the way it was. We thought this evidence-based guy would take over our lives, tell us what to do, and give us cookbook medicine. That was our biggest fear. Now, I believed that till recently. I'm just starting to go of that biased feelings I had for years. He said evidence-based medicine was not excellent evidence to the wrong patient. Let's face it, guys. St. Michael's Hospital, cracking a chest open, makes sense. It doesn't where I work. The right evidence for the right place for the right patient. You know, in theory, theory and practice are the same. In practice, they're very different. And evidence-based medicine is not about hijacking by managers, by governments to control costs. That was my biggest fear. In fact, Dave Sackett said the cost might even go up, which pleased me, but not the governments. So this is called a pyramid of evidence. What is the pyramid of evidence? We know that expert opinion is pretty cool, but it can be dead wrong. Now, make no mistake about it. We all know the occasional person, the occasional expert, who absolutely is dead on every single time. But opinion is opinion, and it can be very mistaken. Randomized controlled trials, double-blind, placebo-controlled, probably the only way we can attempt to get close to the truth without bias. That's how we've gone from laxatives to aspirin. And of course, systematic reviews, because you can't trust one trial. You've got to put them all together and come to sense. So David Sackett, the father of EBM, who worked out of McMaster in Hamilton in Canada, defined evidence-based medicine with three spheres. The first is the actual journal article part, the conscientious, explicit, judicious use of current best evidence. But second, and just as important, is clinical expertise. And third, just important, which sometimes we forget about, is the patient's values. And Dr. Himmel will continue to talk about this a bit further in the talk. Now, when it comes to the pyramid of evidence, or the hierarchy of evidence, as described by Sackett himself, the strength of evidence increases from expert opinion to then case reports to then cohort studies, randomized control trials, and finally, systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Now back to Dr. Himmel. Who in the world can you trust? Trust yourself. Now, certainly, if you've got a friend or a colleague or someone who absolutely is amazing and remarkable and experience teaches you over time, they're right on the ball, you can trust them. Basically, you have to trust your critical appraisal skills. Now, I want to talk a bit about critical appraisal. Now, what in the world is critical appraisal? So the three questions you're going to ask about every article you read, about every lecture you ever talk to, is it valid, free from bias? Is it important? Is there a significant clinical benefit to the patient? And if it's valid and free from bias, and if the results are valid, is it relevant? Is it applicable to my patient? Can I do this where I practice? Because if it's not, don't do it. I've got some beautiful examples about that. 1998, let's go seven years later, from 1988 to 1995. Remember, the neurologists still weren't sure about the aspirin in Europe. 95. What's the most controversial paper in the history of history? TPA for stroke. This is the paper that almost got me murdered a few weeks ago. 
So they studied 600 patients, half got TPA, half didn't get TPA, and 20 years later, we're still arguing about this paper. Now, there's Andy Jagoda here with ASAP Holly for stroke. This guy loves TPA. Jerry Hoffman, you guys know Jerry Hoffman? This guy hates TPA. There's Scott Weingart, he's uh, EM Crit, fantastic podcaster, wonderful human being. Now, how do you figure this out? These guys are all of sound mind, they're all of adult age. In plain words, they're all competent. One guy loves TPA, one guy hates TPA, one guy is dead center TPA. Like, what is going on here? Alfred Sacchetti is a famous American physician. He gave a talk once on the use and abuse of CT scans and MRIs. He said, two things I want to tell you, Himmel. Number one, don't barf. The brainless application of radiological findings. And then he said, if you do that, you're going to produce a victim of modern imaging technology. But that was pretty cool. I was to talk one day about healthcare from the former minister in Saskatchewan who said he practices slab. What's slab? That's when you steal like a bastard. <laughs> if you hear a good idea, you just slab it. So I'm here to tell you this. When you listen to podcasts and read evidence, when you listen to experts, do not practice the brainless application of research findings. The brainless application of research findings because you will produce a victim of modern information translation. This is a mnemonic worth repeating. BARF. Brainless application of research findings, which might lead to being a victim of modern knowledge translation. Dr. Himmel continues. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is dangerous. But incompletely applied knowledge ain't much better. So what is critical appraisal about? It asks three questions. I've just heard a lecture, I've just heard a speaker, I've read a paper. Is it valid, free from bias? Are the outcomes important? Are they a poo? Not the poo you get from giving a myocardial infarction patient laxatives. A poo is a patient-oriented outcome. Is it a patient-oriented outcome? Is it relevant? And relevant means, can I do this to my patient? Every bit of evidence you have, that's the question. Now, what in the world is random error? What is a bias? You know, some error you can't avoid. Flip a coin. Ah, that lonely penny. Flip a coin, once you get a head, once you get a tail. That's random. Every study you look at has a random error. That's about p-values and confidence intervals. It's random. You can't do much about that. But bias is non-random error. That's cheating. Bias is always the one direction. Flip a coin, you get a head. Flip a coin, you get a head. Be careful of expert opinion. Be careful of podcasts. Be careful of literature. Look for bias. Let's talk about NINs as a great example of bias. The patients in that study were randomized. Great. The patients and doctors were blinded. Removes bias. The patients were consecutively enrolled, so you couldn't choose out the patients. No, they weren't. If you think about that study, half the patients were treated within 90 minutes of a stroke, and the other half within three hours of a stroke. How in the world can you have a study where half the patients get are treated within 90 minutes of their stroke? It's just doesn't happen. The NINS patients, there's no way they could have been consecutively enrolled. Follow-up was complete. They couldn't sort of ignore some of the patients. Follow-up was complete in that study. And both groups were similar. You know, when you randomize patients to studies, you want both groups to be more or less similar before you begin the treatment. But what if the randomization fails? The study is not reliable. Now, both groups had equal treatment here. So the NINS trial, 1995, so, so on the valid scale. I just want to show you one this graph. 
We have the TPA patients and the placebo patients. Now, I gotta tell you, I'm a, I'm a fan of TPA in the right case, but this is a big problem for me. The TPA patients had a NIN score of 14. That's a stroke score, which basically says they had bad strokes. But the placebo patients had a NIN score of 15. You might just, that's one point, but I'll tell you what that means. That means the group that got placebo were sicker. That one point's a big point. And that group that got placebo sicker, what does that tell you? That tells you they may have done worse, not because of the drug. Randomization failed. That could be a problem. So when that fails, you can't always believe what the study says. Outcomes. What's the most important outcome in the world? Well, let me tell you a funny story. Four guys in our departments have had stents in the coronary arteries. I was the second recent. A good friend of mine was the most recent guy. We're all back at work. One member of our department had a stroke three years ago. He will never work again. So what's important, death or function? It's about your personal values. So what did NINs look at in the stroke trial? Well, they looked at POOs, patient-oriented outcomes, and basically they said, if we gave you TPA or we gave you placebo, how well did you function three months later? I'm not gonna get into all the politics and the problems. That's what they ask. They said, is it a clinically important difference? And could you help enough people known as the numbers needed to treat? Now, how do you assign and determine function after a stroke? These things they call the modified Ratkin score. Don't worry about the name of it. Just basically good function, bad function. Imagine for a moment, let me step aside, the following. One third of you are going to die of a heart attack or heart disease. One third of you are going to die of cancer. And a third of you are going to have strokes and die from that ultimately. And what does every eMERGE doc worry about? Aortic dissection, subarachnoid hemorrhage, pulmonary embolism, ruptured AAA, 30,000 AAAs rupture in North America per year, 30,000 subarachnoids, 800,000 strokes. So here's the result of this trial. A quarter of the patients, 26% who got placebo, did fine. 39% who got TPA did fine. That's 13 people have understood it better. The ones who love TPA, like Andrew Jagoda said, that says it all. He may have a point. That's for the same. TPA so far looks pretty good, but the study was biased. Let's look at harm. 6% of the people, you've heard this figure again and again, haven't you? 6% of the people who get TPA have intracranial hemorrhage. That drug is dangerous and half of them will die, and that is true. But in both studies, oral death was about the same. Clearly, here's the problem. Some people that give TPA will die, and some will be better, but you don't know which one you're gonna be. That's always the case in the field of medicine. So here was the result of this trial. 13% did better, 6% did worse. Now you could argue it's really very simple. Two on the upside, one on the downside. But there's more to it than that. And here's the question. You've got a stroke. Half this room has a stroke two seconds from now. You get to a hospital, it's 90 minutes from now. You're never going to work again. If you're lucky, you'll die. But you're disabled. The doctor says to you, well, we could give you TPA. We might not. We're not sure about the study. Some people love it. Some people hate it. What do you do with your evidence-based medicine stuff? Well, Dave Sackett said the evidence is not clear. Clinical expertise, highly variable. It's all about the values. You know, 
I'd rather be dead than be totally disabled and paralyzed. Some people would rather be alive. Clearly, we will ask for two different approaches. So those who hate TPA have to consider patient values. Those who love it have to consider patient values. This is true about TPA. It's true about all of medicine. There's another more important question. Can you do a thoracotomy in your institution? Can you put in two chest tubes in three minutes and have a neurosurgeon down in your ER department in two minutes? In plain words, every time you read a study, is it feasible? I've got some beautiful examples about that. Can you implement what they did in the study in your institution? Because if you can't, don't do what the study says. Can you get a CT scan in 30 minutes? Can you treat a stroke within three hours? Can you get all the exclusion principles? Have you got a system that supports you? Evidence-based medicine says you have to be able to replicate what the study says, or the study could be absolutely harmful to your patients. This is the principles of EBM. Let's go to 2013. So this was totally shocking to me. About a year and a half ago, ASAP, American College of Medicine basically said the following, TPA should be offered within three hours to patients who qualify for the use. If you meet all the criteria, that's a lot of ifs. Three to four and a half hours off for TPA. I'm not sure about that one. And here's what else ASAP said. Effectiveness is less well established, less systems in place. This was the beginning of a second American revolution. The ASAP policy committee loved TPA for stroke. The doctors hated it. What's the resolution? I think it's about patient values. It's about your analysis of the situation. Even if you don't believe in it, you've got to know the study so you can give a patient truly informed consent. Because without truly informed consent, let me tell you what you get. Malicious obedience. So here's the resolution. Then I'm going to move on to some new worlds and better case histories. Number one, the guy who loves TPA says it wasn't a biased study. It's clinically important outcomes. It's applicable to all patients in good institutions, and it's proven therapy. Maybe his institution. The guy who hates TPA says the study was biased. He's got a point. Misrepresented, and he's got a point. There's no way he says it's applicable because we can't meet all those requirements in the average hospital, and you've got to replicate the study. So EBM teaches you a point here which says the following. They're both right, and they're both wrong. You've got to have an expert so you can make sense out of this, and different opinions are absolutely logical. No issues, but more so the values of your patients. So EBM is hard work. There's no definitive answers. Bias is permanent. You'll never know the truth. You can only estimate the truth. And there's a rule for validation studies, and the devil is in the details. So I listen to podcasts four hours a week. I exercise. I read what I can. But I got to tell you, I'm very skeptical. And I try to do critical appraisal to the best of my ability. So just to review here a bit, when it comes to critical appraisal, you need to ask yourself three questions. One, is it valid, that is, free from bias? Two, are the outcomes patient-oriented outcomes? And three, is it relevant to your practice? In other words, is it feasible in your emergency department? Dr. Himmel uses the landmark TPA study NINS from 1995 as a good example of how the values of the patient is important in decision-making. While 26% of the placebo arm did well according to the modified Rankin score, that means they had pretty good function after their stroke, 39% of the TPA arm did well, had pretty good function after their stroke. 
But on the other hand, 6% of the TPA arm suffered from intracranial hemorrhage and half of those died. So what it comes down to is your patient values. Is your patient willing to take the 3% chance of dying over the 13% chance that they'll have improved outcome? If Dr. Himmel was the patient, his values dictate that he would want to get the TPA and take the chance because he'd rather be dead rather than lose the ability to perform the activities of daily life. So again, patient values need to be taken into account when trying to apply the results of a study to your patient. Same year, 2013. This next two cases, I'm close to the end, are going to absolutely stun you as they stun me. Now, I consider myself an update sort of guy. So, famous paper number three. Now, they didn't call it blood as liquid transplant, but blood is definitely a liquid transplant. So here's what the paper said. Transfusion strategies for upper GI bleeding. Now, have you guys seen upper GI bleed in the last four years, three years, two years? Of course you have. This is a really big deal. When do you transfuse upper GI bleeds? I gotta tell you, in 76, every patient with a hemoglobin of under 100 got blood. Everybody. If I see a patient who's five weeks post breast reduction in the ER, whose hemoglobin is 58 and she's 40 years old, and her hemoglobin is 58, she's feeling not too bad, I don't give blood. 10 years ago, she would have got four units of blood. So evidence-based medicine is a moving target. So here's what the paper said in January 2013, not that long ago. 900 patients, ulcers, malarial-wise tears, all that kind of stuff, right? Came in with a GI bleed, melina or vomiting up blood. These are people we see every day. And this paper you got to listen to because you're going to see this this week. Now, they ruled out no active heart disease, no lower GI bleed, no strokes, and no massive bleeding. Why is that important? Because someone's going to tell you, you don't have to give patients blood unless you're hemoglobin under 70 with a GI bleed. That's not what the paper said. The paper said upper GI bleeds with all those exclusion criteria. This is the problem with sort of winging it. You got to get the details straight. Alan too talked about hypothermia. I was visiting a site a couple of months ago in Ontario, and the doctor, chief of staff says, the hypothermia paper just came out. We don't have to cool people anymore. That's not what it said. It said basically cooling to 36 might be just as good as cooling to 33. It didn't say you don't got to cool people. There's been a recent paper called the Process Trial about goal-directed therapy of shock and sepsis, right? And the Process Trial basically said as long as you give antibiotics and fluids in an aggressive sort of way, you don't have to do every single step of the Manual Rivers trial. I've actually heard colleagues say to me, I told you this goal-directed therapy with a bunch of crap. That's not what the paper said. They compared early goal-directed therapy to aggressive intervention, not to nothing. It's all about the interpretation of details. So let's look at this GI paper and two wonderful cases where the patient's randomized to transfusion when your hemoglobin is high or wait until they're low. Yes. Were they ED patients? Every time you read a report, if you work in the ED, you've got to ask yourself, are these ED patients or not? 
where the patients consecutively enrolled. In plain words, when they researched the study, did every patient who appeared at the hospital have to go into the study? Because if you could exclude certain patients, the study's not reliable. And the answer is, I'm not sure. It wasn't well described in the paper. Was the doctor and the patient blinded? See, the truth of it is, if you know what the patient's getting, and they know what they're getting, and you love what they're getting, you're going to treat them better. And this study, they were not blinded. Now, what is the major cause of prejudice amongst the treating physician about doctors who give lectures and seminars? We always think it's the money. I own stock and sharing plow. You know, I've been paid $10,000 a year to give a talk. I'll tell you what I've learned, and the American College of Physicians now realizes this. One of the most potent forms of bias is not money. One of the most potent forms of bias is expertise. You've heard of a face only a mother can love? Can you imagine if you worked on a drug like the Bigotran for 20 years? You've worked on a Pixaban for AFib for 10 years? Day and night you've worked on this drug? You love that drug. You are now biased. That's why when Chess published their guidelines on thrombosis called ATT9, antithrombotic therapy, 900 pages, every chapter demanded a methodologist be there to keep the expert from being too biased because he knew too much about his drug and he loved it. So there's many kinds of bias. Expertise is a form of bias. Okay, so let's think about GI bleed. So the patients come into the hospital with GI bleed, you see them in the emergency department, you check their hemoglobin. If their hemoglobin was under 90, half the patients got blood. The other patients, hemoglobin was 90, 85, 87, 75, 74, 72, no blood, no blood, no blood. How many of you see patients with GI bleeds with hemoglobins of 74, 73, 72, and you give no blood to? I have a lot of you to give blood to these patients. In this study, they did not. But they all got gastroscopy within six hours. In your institution, can you get gastroscopy within six hours for every GI bleed? Because if you can't, don't do what this study says. Here's what the paper actually said. Half these patients will not get blood until their hemoglobin is under 70. They will not get blood till the hemoglobin is under 70, period. The other half will get blood as soon as the hemoglobin is under 90, period. However, the paper also said, well, we're gonna break the rules. If the patient is short of breath, has symptoms, looks bad, it's going to the OR, they're gonna get blood. Now, why do I make this point? Well, if you don't read these details, you're gonna basically say, I read this great study, I don't have to give the patient blood till they're 70. That's not what the paper said. Wait till they're 70, as long as they're reasonably stable. If they look bad, break the rules and give them blood. So keep calm because Less blood is more, usually. Now, Ken Mill quotes one of his mentors, a Dr. Worcester, who said, when it comes to evidence-based medicine, it depends. What you do depends. Here's what a study showed. This is absolutely amazing. Half the patients got a restrictive policy, less blood, no blood till the hemoglobin was under 70. Their mortality was 5%. The liberal group that got blood under 90, they got more blood, their mortality was almost double. Giving blood killed people. Look at the adverse events. Those who got little blood got adverse events of 40%. Those who got more blood had more adverse events. Many fevers, rashes, and heart failure. So clearly, for the right kind of patient, 
restricting blood till you're, under, till you're close to 70 or less, even the GI bleed is a good thing. We know from papers many years ago that in the ICU, you know, in 1998, for example, if you were an ICU patient and your hemoglobin was 95 in the ICU, what did you get? Blood. Hemoglobin was 90, you got blood. Hemoglobin was 85, you got blood. We know from papers published back in those days in Canada, you don't have to give stable ICU patients blood till hemoglobin is 70. I absolutely do not transfuse patients' blood in the ER if they're healthy with hemoglobin 60. I don't. I don't want to give them blood transfusions to healthy 35-year-old women. And the evidence for this is pretty good. So two case histories that are going to just tell you the dangers of evidence-based medicine and the beauty of evidence-based medicine. It's also going to tell you podcasts are great, exercise is great, but you've got to watch the details. If you don't want to read the details, listen to a good podcast. Can't read a good podcast? Talk to people you trust. Go to a good conference, just like you've heard this morning. So I saw a patient in February 2013. Now the paper came out in January 2013. It was volume one, number one, January 2013. I get New England Medicine mailed to my house. I read the paper, I said, fantastic. I always lecture about hematology issues. Hemoglobin 70, beautiful. Patient walks into the, not North York, the place I work, nine o'clock at night, seven, nine years of age. What drugs is she on? Aspirin and Voltaren or Celebrex, one of those two. Of course, I said to her, you taking arthritis pills? No. Had Melina. Didn't look too bad. Epigastric pain. Any patient who's 70 with epigastric pain, after you've done your two ultrasounds and three CAT scans, ask them, are you taking aspirin? It's a blood goddamn ulcer. Underdiagnosed all the time. Hemoglobin was 85. I said, no problem. In the OR, looking pretty good. I'm going to refer to medicine. Just imagine you're in my shoes, okay? I'm an up-to-date, evidence-based guy. Nine o'clock at night, Saturday night, a year ago, 79, Melina, looking pretty good, epigastric hemoglobin 85. I would have given her blood two years ago, but not now, because I'm informed. I practice evidence-based medicine. I'll be quite frank, I hadn't read to say that carefully. I just read 70. Fine, I'll do it. But I was pretty sly. I cross-matched two units of blood, not realizing, I told the nurse, I don't want to give the blood, just cross-match it. I didn't realize if they hear not giving the blood, they won't cross-match it. They won't hold blood for me at this hospital. Great. Imagine the picture. I'm now in fast track, sprained ankles, upset people, migraines. This woman's aspirin, Voltaren, hemoglobin 85. I'm an evidence-based guy, right? Suddenly. What happened? I get a call to recess. Had a seizure. So I needed epilepsy after I saw her. <laughs> so what happened? She had a hypovolemic arrest. I said, no problem. Open up two IVs. Give her fluid right away. Guess what? Give her blood. I found out there's no blood. You have to cross-match it now. I said, Jesus, just give her O-negative blood. Then I'm getting a call from the lab. Well, you sure you want O negative blood? <laughs> this could happen to you tomorrow. If you practice evidence-based medicine, this could happen to you tomorrow. Now remember, ignorance is a disaster, but the brainless application of research finding produces victims of modern information translation. Now I think we've got to get the translation from 10 years to one, 
but not to one hour. You got to take your time. Some things you got to think about. So I follow the study. He has a cardiac arrest, and she died. I, I was shaken. This is 15 months. I didn't practice 37 years. You could argue I killed this person because I practiced evidence-based medicine, so I thought I did. So what did I do wrong? I barfed. The brainless application research findings. I absolutely barfed. I got the paper wrong. It said, sure, don't transfuse till the hemoglobin under 70, but transfuse whenever necessary. Heart rate going up, increased bleeding, beginning to exsanguinate. That's what the paper said, but I didn't do it. Well, I can't be with the patient 24 hours a day. What else did the paper say? The patient admitted to the ICU. They were followed closely. These patients had gastroscopy in six hours. Was that patient going to get a gastroscope within six hours? No. Give blood when necessary. What's the point here? Read the evidence. Listen to the podcast. But before you start doing something, ask yourself, can I match what the study did? I brought all of you back from 1977. We know evidence-based medicine is amazing. We know the infarct survival paper was great. We know we're all a bunch of biased bastards. You know there's lots of good source of information up there. You know you've got to be skeptical, but knowledge is lovely. You haven't got time to read, listen to podcasts. You haven't got time to listen to podcasts. It's no good podcast. You can't afford an iPhone, get a Blackberry. You can't afford that. <laughs> go to a good conference. You can't go to a good conference. Read the summaries in the library. Our library, North York, doesn't have journals anymore, too expensive. Like, I get the American Journal of Emergency Medicine mailed to my house. You know what that costs, that journal? Offensive. $800 a year. I mean, Sir William Osler was right. You know what William Osler said over 100 years ago? When a new drug comes out, use it immediately before it becomes ineffective. <laughs> he knew about bias. So take-home points here. There's bias everywhere. Make sure that the paper that you're reading is relevant to your practice. And it's all in the details. What's the most controversial paper in the history of history? I'd rather be dead than be totally disabled and paralyzed. Socrates had a point. You still got to read. Non-random error, otherwise known as cheating. Try to figure these papers out. You got to be a goddamn genius, you know. Okay, guys, last case. This is going to actually stun you. Stun you. I'm working at North York, my birthday. I just turned 62. So here's one thing you take home. Don't work on your birthday. It's never a good thing. <laughs> a 69-year male walks in with no health coverage. And what's he on? Aspirin and Celebrex. Now, why is he on Celebrex? Because it doesn't cause ulcers, right? Oh, my God. He's probably seen his doctor because of epigastric pain. Been three major departments because of epigastric pain. He's probably had two ultrasounds and three CAT scans. It's a goddamn ulcer, man. This is diagnosed all the time. So he, he went to the acute area, and uh, he was in epigastric pain. All right. So I assessed him, uh, and suddenly I'm seeing another patient. And of course, my bladder was full because I'm 62. So I, I go out of the bathroom, I look up, and the guy is going, whew, barf, and blood coming out of his mouth. Oh, my God. A chia, I bleed. Evidence-based medicine. What do I do? Him was 99. I know what to do this time. 
I read the paper like three times. I mean, I, I try to figure these papers out. You gotta be goddamn genius, you know. Three times I read this bloody paper. Four podcasts, I still have got the whole thing straight in my brain. 99, give blood if you need it. Shit, man, this guy's getting blood. <laughs> the ending of this story, you're gonna shit your pants. Here's what I did. Because I practice evidence-based medicine, but I care about the patient. Now I have clinical experience. Here's what I did. Fuck the paper, man. Recess room, two IVs, two units of blood. No barfing. The patient was barfing. I was not doing no brainless application of research findings because no victims of modern imaging and information translation. You know, I, I hate to knock a lot of my colleagues and, and the internet and that kind of stuff. I think these are fantastic add-ons. I mean, I, got I haven't slept in three years. You know, I, I got Twitter going, <laughs> internet going, iPads going, bing, 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 bing. I mean, believe it or not, I, 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 Scott Weingart's talking about this paper about hypothermia, that they don't have to hypothermia down to 33 degrees. Four in the morning, I get home from a night shift. My, my phone's ringing, and I go, oh, yeah, Scott Weingart. I go, New England Journal of Medicine. It wasn't even published yet. I mean, I mean, this is all fantastic. I do it all. It's changed my life dramatically. But you know what? Socrates had a point. You still got to read. You still got to think. You still got to select what you're going to read. I mean, the printing press is cool. The iPhone is cool. But back to this patient. And this is important. You're going to see this patient tomorrow at your shift. Okay, so the, the guy's barfing blood. I ordered two units of blood because I know give blood when necessary. By the way, we have a massive transfusion protocol at North York General because I wrote the goddamn thing. <laughs> Someone canceled the blood. <laughs> no, it's not getting the way you think, man. This guy's not have a cardiac arrest on my shift and my birthday. <laughs> Let me tell you what really happened. The gastroenterologist who had been called and arrived within 30 minutes of being called which is when the patient having been seen within two hours arrived, he canceled the blood. And here's what happened. Emergency gastroscopy, just like the paper said. Now, if you can't get that, you give the blood. If you can't give TP to a stroke, the way the paper said, you speak to your department and come up with a policy. You can't do a crack of chest in your department, don't bloody well start. You won't have your hand in someone's chest the same mics on the phone saying, transfer the patient to our hospital. <laughs> I mean, it's, I don't want to be doing that. So back to our patient. The GI guy cancels the blood. There's the gastroenterologist and our emergency department doing endoscopy right in the ER, identifying a Mallory Weiss tear. Now, BARF was the brainless application of research findings. ARF is the appropriate application of research findings. We did the ARF here. We, we got this gasoscope in. That's the picture of the esophagus. The bleeding has stopped. Let's go back to this paper and evidence-based medicine. The paper says the average GI bleed, not lower bleed, not heart disease, doesn't need blood until the hemoglobin drops under 70. That is true if you've got close supervision. That's what happened to that first patient. They did not go from being stable to a cardiac arrest without someone like not being asleep. It didn't happen like that. So let's summarize about evidence-based medicine. 
evidence-based medicine is fantastic. The internet's fantastic and podcasts are fantastic, but they gotta use the best clinical evidence that you evaluate or get friends who help you do it. You've gotta use your clinical expertise and the patient values are important. If I have a stroke right now in a spot, and I might come to pee my pants any moment. If I have a stroke right in the spot right now, and I get to hospital in 90 minutes or 100 minutes, I don't care what you guys think about TPA or what your health thinks about TPA. I'd rather be functional and I'm prepared to risk death. Now, someone who loves me may feel differently. They'd rather have me alive and disabled than dead. I'm telling you right now, those are my values. I'm prepared to risk death for function. If your patient feels differently, you'll give them different advice. Critical appraisal. Who can you trust? You can find people you can trust. You can find conferences you can trust. Stick with them. But you've got to ask yourself, is the information valid, free from bias? Are the outcomes important? And is it applicable where I'm from? Can you do in Exeter what you can do in Hamilton, what you can do in Toronto? Can you do it where you practice? And now you know the importance of evidence-based medicine. It's phenomenally relevant, as is everything you've heard about today. Thank you. Wow, what an amazing talk. I think I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm happy to announce that Michelle Lin from the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine blog and I are collaborating on an exciting new project. The plan is that we'll take the Global Emergency Medicine Journal Club that was first launched in November of 2013 as a joint collaboration between Academic Life and Emergency Medicine and the Annals of Emergency Medicine. What it is is that the Annals Journal Club series was originally intended to serve as a resource for residency programs with a list of critical appraisal questions and then several months later, the corresponding answers. With the current social media technologies, these discussions no longer needed to occur only in the local setting, so an affiliated department was created under the Annals of Emergency Medicine called Academic Life in Emergency Medicine, which Michelle currently is the editor for. The idea of the Allium Annals Journal Club series was to bring experts, practitioners, and learner into the same virtual learning community to discuss journal articles that the Annals of Emergency Medicine had already pre-selected for the Journal Club series. So since the beginning of this Global Journal Club, it's already evolved rapidly to now incorporate discussions not only on the blog, but also on Twitter and more uniquely on a Google Hangout on air. So using Google Hangout on air, what Allium has done is hosted live video conference interviews and discussions featuring the lead authors and experts and incorporating the blog and Twitter comments into that. So the next step, and this is how EM Cases gets involved, is to extend the discussion to reach what we're now calling Journal Jam on EM Cases. The idea is to teach with reach, using as many different platforms as possible to make it convenient for you, the medical provider. So what we're going to do is create a podcast that will be on the EM Cases website that will have the interviews of the lead authors from the Google Hangouts with some summaries and take-home points of the Journal Club. So I'm really looking forward to this incredible collaboration with one of the greatest educators in emergency medicine, Michelle Lin. So that's about it for this episode. In the next episode, we're going to be talking about pediatric fever and also pediatric fever without a source, 
with two pediatric emergency medicine physicians from the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa, Dr. Sarah Reed and Dr. Gina Netto. So until next time, take it easy.